Hi, everyone. This is Why My Parents Worry About Me, and I'm Mana. And I'm Taylor, and you're listening to a podcast where we spin the globe, land on a random city, and share stories of true crime, folklore, and a touch of paranormal that will truly make our parents worry about us. I feel like my voice was silly. Was it silly? <laughs> it was loud. I know. Should I redo it? If you want to, you can. Your, like, level of excitement was, like, 70% more than mine, so I can bring it up a little bit. And yeah, we should try to meet in the you middle. You can bring it down a little bit. Yeah, you're at, like, 90. You need to be at 670. Why am I being so weird? Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Why My Parents Worry About Me. I'm Mana. And I'm Taylor, and you're listening to a podcast where we spin the globe, land on a random city, and share stories of true crime, folklore, and a touch of paranormal that'll truly make our parents worry about us. Amazing. I really don't know if we should tell the like listeners that it took us maybe like 10 minutes to try to do this opening this week. And we continue to struggle over things that should not be struggle worthy. Also, they don't matter. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, they don't matter. At all. But I'm still going to comment really on good. it and embarrass us both. Yeah, well, so we're going to comment on it and nobody else will notice anything about it. Like, no one else will realize it's a problem until we're like hey we just messed up there congratulations i heard this crazy story right before we started recording i am intrigued please tell okay so basically it's not like a fully fleshed out like theory or anything so basically what i had heard is that if aliens are real it's possible for us as humans to not even be able to understand or fully understand what they are or like be able to see them in the sense that, like, we understand, if that makes sense. And the way that they described it is, like, if an ant sees a human, the ant probably doesn't understand what a human is because of our, like, intelligent levels. Yes, I'm following. Like, isn't that crazy? Like, there could be aliens, but we just haven't been shown them because we don't have the intelligence to understand fully what it is. I'm just, like, trying to comprehend it in my... (laughs) This is literally what you're talking about, where we can't, like, comprehend higher beings. Or not even higher beings, but you know what I mean. But my brain's, like, trying to comprehend it in this moment. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm confused. They were trying to describe that to me, and I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, even me trying to describe it to you, I was like, is what, like, the audible words coming out of my mouth matching what is happening in my brain? Because my brain understands what I'm saying, but my mouth is, like, not saying what... I want it to. I'm just, like, trying to, like... I mean, because I feel like ants don't have the same brain capacity as a human. And, like, they don't... They don't... They're... I mean, they evolve, but they don't evolve into thinking. They evolve via instinct. And we have more, like, evolution in the way that we think to evolve. Now I feel like I'm just being even more confusing. (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. But, like, it makes you stop and think to be, like... Okay, aliens could exist. We could also just not be able to understand it fully, just like an ant can't understand what a human is, or like an ant can't understand what a 10-lane highway is because they don't see like the bigger picture. Make I mean, so you're talking to me who actually does believe in aliens, so I'm like, ah. Uh, uh, but I already believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely think it's a possibility, 110%. I mean, it's like, I don't like to believe in aliens, like, in, like, the movies, you know what I mean? Those type of aliens. But to not believe that there's other life forms in a different galaxy, I think, is very close-minded. Like, there's, we cannot be the only planet that holds life form. No. And also, 
I mean, I don't even think it needs to be another galaxy. It could be within our galaxy. I mean, yeah, we, like, hardly get past the sun. <laughs> yeah. Hardly. We can't even actually get past the sun. <laughs> we pretty much, like, get within this barrier and we're like, we're done. <laughs> we're like, that's like enough too exploration. <laughs> yeah. We're done for now. But, yeah, it was just it was just a thought that I had heard someone say, and I was like, I'm going to share it with Mana. She'll appreciate it. Yeah, because it made me think and also have a mental breakdown at the same time. <laughs> we should have an alien story sometime. That would be fun. Thinking about that in one of our later cities, which even we don't know what's coming up. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I know that they had a lot of uh, alien cases in Manila, Philippines, or just the Philippines in general. But we didn't choose any of those for our first call. No. First call. First podcast episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've been calling when we do this. <laughs> yeah. Whoopsie doopsie. We love Corona season. <laughs> yeah. One of these days you'll be welcome into my home. Yeah. Thank you. More like your garage. That's probably where we where we would record. I checked the Wi-Fi out there and it's not good. There's no Wi-Fi out there, so it's just not going to work. Guaranteed better Wi-Fi than the Wi-Fi in my house. <laughs> Which is... As we've you're, been like, jamming the computer into your router. <laughs> I'm like, how much closer can I get? As I'm like, my router's below my laptop. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at 11.30, it'll turn off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Every last time, week. <laughs> last time we were recording, my sister was in my room listening and... Like, my computer shut off, and all you can hear is my sister from the other side of the room go, oh, it's 11.30, the Wi-Fi shuts off. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> that happened the week after that, too. Yeah, it's honestly a true thing. I didn't know that was a thing in the household. I just never noticed. I didn't even know you could do that, but it's got to be like a child safety lock because you're a child. Where are we going this week? We're going to Sydney, Australia. Very exciting. Do you do a good accent? So actually one time I was with an Australian friend and I've, I found that when I hang out with people from different countries, I start to like pick up some of their words or their mannerisms. So I was hanging out with my friend from Australia and we were going to McDonald's and I remember turning to him and I was like, yeah, let's go to Macca's. And he was like, what did you say to me? And I was like, Matt, McDonald's. (laughs) He was like, no, you said Macca's, which is what the Australians called McDonald's. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, I (laughs) hang out with you too much. Yeah, that's so funny. It's true, though. I think when you hang around people, even like watch television shows, you kind of like gain little personality traits of theirs, which is fun. Do you ever just finish a show and then you realize that you start acting like one of the characters you're watching? Like I start to like take up their habits for like a week and then I'm like, stop, you're being ridiculous. You just finished one episode or like you just finished the <laughs> season finale and now you're acting like you're somebody. Stop. <laughs> the, so the last show I watched was Mad Men. Um, so I don't want to be any of those characters whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Fair. <laughs> but. I will say that I started drinking gin because they drink gin, and it doesn't upset my stomach like every other alcohol does, so. Honestly, I hate gin, so that's really funny that you like it. <laughs> I don't like vodka, so. Yeah, I'm more of a vodka drinker. So you want to get started? Um, yeah, I think it's your turn to start the story this week. Are you sure? Positive. So this week I will be talking about the murder of Victor Chang. This case is really heartbreaking, and I know that I just talked about a nurse that committed possibly hundreds of murders, but I wanted to flip the script just a little bit. 
At times like this, we really do need to thank our essential workers. I know everyone is so sick and tired of hearing about the pandemic, but if you do get a chance to thank any of these essential workers, I'm sure they'll appreciate it. I mean, I'm tired. I'm sure they're on a whole nother level of being tired. So Victor Chang was an Australian cardiac surgeon and was said to be at the forefront of heart transplant surgery. This incredible heart, heart doctor pioneered the development of the artificial heart valve. He helped establish St. Vincent National Cardiac Transplant Unit, Australia's leading center for heart and lung transplants. His education included completing his medical studies at the University of Sydney, and he worked at the St. Vincent Hospital. He also trained in the UK and the US before he returned to Australia. Just five years before his murder, he was appointed a Companion of the Order of Australia, which is a really big deal in Australia. According to the Wikipedia article that I found about him, it is an order of chivalry established on 14th of February 1975 by Elizabeth II, Queen of Australia, to recognize Australian citizens and other persons for achievement or um, like service for fellow Australians. Mm -hmm. So he, he was really famous and well-known then, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So he, he had worked on like hundreds of people, hundreds of transplants. So he was really famous for what he was doing. And he also, you know, helped to develop that artificial heart valve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, something that I think is really cute since we kind of shout out my family a lot, but Lisa is in like almost every podcast um shout out to lisa <laughs> right his mother is credited as the reason why he wanted to practice medicine when he was only 12 years old his mother passed away due to breast cancer at the super young age of 33 it seemed like victor's parents really wanted the best for him and his siblings he was actually born in shanghai to australian born chinese parents he grew up in hong kong but in 1951 aubrey his father sent them to Sydney to live with extended family. I'm assuming it's probably because of, like, education and wanting his kids to have, like, a better life and things like that. Actually, a cute little side note on top of talking about family. Uh, last week, we talked about London, England, and that's where he met his soon-to-be wife, Anne. She was um, really sick in the hospital, and he happened to be the doctor that was there. It's adorable. He became a fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons in 1966, and that's why he was there. So he was just doing, like, I believe his residency, but, like, how cute is that? I mean, I can't imagine, like, finding um, any a future husband in general, but <laughs> especially that way. <laughs> right. Also, it's, like, in sickness and in health, she probably, well, at least when I am sick, I look like a hot mess, so I can't even, <laughs> like, imagine. Oh, my God, you're right. He really saw her at her worst. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm sure he appreciated her at her best as well. Amazing. That's so uh, sweet. But also I know it's a murder, so can't wait right. for it to go downhill. <laughs> the beginning of yeah. this. Yeah, the beginning of this is like super wholesome, and then it turns like really dark really fast. Uh, I wanted to touch a little bit on his surgical career, just a little bit, and then we can talk about his passing. So a man named Harry Windsor was the first Australian to perform a heart transplant back in 1968, Vincent actually worked alongside him and another man named Mark Shanahan. In the 1980s, a anti-rejection drug made it easier for surgeons to perform heart and lung transplants. 
So Victor, being the incredible guy he was, helped lobby politician and businessman to invest money into the program that he was working to establish. So he was lobbying for them to invest in also that, um, that unit that he was starting as well. Mm-hmm. So the unit that he helped to create performed over 197 heart transplants and 14 heart and lung transplants with a 90% success rate. But he didn't stop there. He also began to realize that there was a shortage of organ donors, so he helped to establish a team of engineers, scientists, and a marketing specialist to come up with an affordable artificial valve. So he, like, saved a lot of lives. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, crazy how awesome this man was. I mean, I guess it's not that crazy. He just was awesome. (laughs) He just did his job. He just was doing his job. So why would someone so incredibly giving, compassionate, and kind be murdered? On July 4th, 1991, two men rammed their vehicle into Victor's car. This forced Victor to pull his car over. The two men proceeded to go up to Victor, and the three men got into an argument because Victor was not willing to give them money. Victor was shot in the head twice during the failed extortion attempt. According to Wikipedia, the first shot entered near the right cheek and exited below the right ear, while the fatal second shot was fired at point-blank range, entering the right temple and passing through the brain. Later, Victor was found slumped in the gutter next to his car in a suburb right outside of Sydney. Or I think it was in Sydney, but it was like on the outskirts of Sydney. Okay. So at first, there was a theory that it was a gang-related activity, Um, there's this gang that is a Chinese transnational organized crime, um, gang called the Triad. Um, the theory was that they asked Victor to sell criminals' organs to the wealthy. However, later on in the investigation, the police concluded that this terrible act of violence was a completely amateur act. Um, the judge was basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said that their attempt at getting money from him was, like, never going to happen, and what they did was, like, just really poorly planned and poorly done. Yeah. So, the two men that rammed Victor's car and killed this beloved surgeon was Chu Sang Lu, who was nicknamed Asung, and Chun Ti Lim, who was nicknamed Philip. The police arrested the two men and another man that I haven't talked about just yet, but we'll get there. So, during the trial of the two men that rammed Victor's car, take a shot every time I say that. You have at least three that you need to take. Lou was sentenced to... (laughs) Ram the car. (laughs) But he rammed the car, okay. So, like, that's five. Take two more. (laughs) So, Lou was the man who shot Victor in the head twice, and he decided to plead guilty during the trial. After the trial, he was sentenced to 26 years in prison with no parole for 20 years. Lim said that he had no idea that his partner had a gun, so he pleaded not guilty and received the sentence of 24 years. Then, there's this third man named Stanley, and I have, like, no idea how to say his last name. It's just the letter N and then the letter G. Mm. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) You said it so confidently. Just say it very confidently. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, so I 
I don't know how to say it. I like can't even like I like I can't wrap my head around how a last name It's it's Cantonese. Okay, well, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> it's the sound of ng and sing. So you say ng. Ng. I was right. Ng. Oh, okay. Yeah. Miss, I can speak a different language than you. I get it. <laughs> or I just looked it up to make sure it was Cantonese. <laughs> Wait. How to pronounce ng. Okay, hold on. Oh. Okay, well, whatever. It's still <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> I'm still stressed by it. Right. <laughs> the energy that it created in the room, I'm over it. I'm, I can't handle it. I'm moving on <laughs> with my story. So, Stanley, the man with a strange last name, which is probably not a strange last name, it's just a strange last name to me. So, if you have that last name, please don't come and attack me. Um, <laughs> he helped get evidence but uh he had a failed extortion plan that he was supposed to like have happened i think two days or a couple days before the actual murder of victor happened Mm -hmm. so he failed it and then these guys must have taken the opportunity so unfortunately he was granted immunity for his help with the case even though the prosecution said that he had tried to detain Victor two separate times and force him to give um, him three million dollars. Who just, like, expects a three million dollars? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Also, how, like, do you have three million dollars in your bank account? No, I don't. No. I mean, he's a doctor, so he may. I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of money. Um, that's fair, but at the same time, no. I mean, I wouldn't even, like go up to any celebrity and be like, give me a hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm just like, please give me a selfie. Yeah. My anxiety would tell me, no, you can't yeah, do that. That's true. You can't function like that. <laughs> would you go up to a celebrity and ask them for a, like an autograph or a, or a phone, like a selfie? No, I feel really yeah. bad for them because, um, I feel like they get a lot of shit all the time, so I mm-hmm. feel like I wouldn't want to be another person that bothers them. I saw, right. oh my god, who did I see in New Orleans? Um, famous male British actors. This is how I found him last time. Because <laughs> I literally, so it actually ended up happening as I like saw him, and I was like, that guy is famous. Oh my god, Jude Law. It's Jude Law. I saw Jude Law in New Orleans. Um, Stop! This past, like, winter break, yeah. I'm like, pretty sure... That one of the girls on, and that's why we drink, also claims to see Jude Law. So, that's very funny. And, like, no one believes her because she's always like, I just saw Jude Law. I just saw Jude Law. I swear I just saw Jude Law. And it's, like, never him. And then one day she, like, actually saw I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I'm having, like, a weird, like, like, I don't know what Stop. they're called. I got a picture of him. I, st- I was, like... Like, I'm saying, I was like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't, like, go talk to a celebrity. I wouldn't want to bother them. They probably get bothered a lot. At the same time, I was taking a sneaky photo of him. Right. Just to have well, proof. Yeah. So I did. I took a sneaky photo of him. Of course. Why so I have you? proof. That's my proof. I have proof. I think it would be fun to, I, I would just hate to be a celebrity and you're eating dinner and then, like, people are like, sorry to bother you. And I know that you're eating pasta right now, but, and, like, you have to, like, get up, take a photo with them, and then you know one person takes a photo with you, everybody's going to want to take a photo with you. Everybody's going to want to get an autograph with you. And 
I feel like I have to be dressed in the nines every time I leave the yeah, house. Yeah, I just, like, I'm homeless, so that's just not gonna work. This is why I like mask season. I love having masks right now because I don't want to do anything with my face. <laughs> you just have to make sure your eyeliner's on fleek and you're, d- you're, you're done. Yeah, I literally put on eyelashes and I'm like, oh, we good to no. go? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's amazing. But yeah, um, <laughs> that's funny if we both seen Jude Law. <laughs> I know. Okay, I just don't know if this is, like, a weird, like... Deja vu, where you yeah, think you... When I'm... you're like, I swear to God, I've heard this before. I swear, and I may have listened to their podcast and been like, do I know this story? Like, did this happen in my life? But that's so funny. Maybe he just hangs out there all the time. Maybe he lives there. I don't know. I mean, he's British, so he doesn't live there, but... He was at, like, a really famous, like, restaurant, so it made sense. It was a very, like, it's a very low-key, like, not famous. I mean, imagine me trying to go to, like, a famous, expensive restaurant. No. They wouldn't <laughs> even let me in the door. It was just, like, a, it's, like, a well-known, like, more, like, hole-in-the-wall place, so. Gotcha. It's, like, a dining drivers and dives type place. Yeah. This is really good, though. So, that's yeah, awesome. that was fun. <laughs> Hung out with Allison Stoner before. Oh, that's cool. Like, loosely, though. What does loosely mean? <laughs> so... Yeah, okay, so I guess that was, like, the only interaction I've had with, like, a quote-unquote celebrity. So, she was, it was, like, maybe two years ago, and what she she was doing was transitioning between movies and music, and um, she was at, like, this, I don't know, like, little, like, show, and I happened to be backstage, um... And she, like, came in and did her song and then was walking out and, I don't know, like, she walked by us and was, like, hanging around the people that I was hanging around. And a bunch of people were getting photos with her, and I didn't mm-hmm. even realize, like, oh, that's Allison Stoner. That's because cool. Because she looks so different from, like, when she was 12. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, and she is adorable cool. now. She has short hair. She didn't have short hair when I saw her in real life, but she has short hair now and she's really cute. Oh my God. Yeah. So I guess we both met celebrities. So the original plan was to kidnap Victor, tie him up with his family in his home, and then threaten to hang them until Victor withdrew all of his money from his bank. Obviously, that plan didn't get very far. Um, so they resorted to the plan that obviously ended up with him passing away. On October 26, 2009, Lim was given parole. So, um, Lim was the guy that didn't shoot him. Yeah. So for very obvious reasons, there was a huge public outcry and the South Wales Correctional Service Minister, John Robertson, put his release on hold. Um... He did this pending another hearing, and during that hearing, the New South Wales Supreme Court made a procedural error, and the decision was rejected. So on March 1st, 2010, he was released from jail and placed into the custody of immigration, where he was later deported to Malaysia, which is where he was originally from. And now we can't forget about Lou. After 21 years behind bars, he was granted parole, so a year after, um... He was, like, allowed to get parole. Mm -hmm. He was given parole, and he was granted it and deported to Malaysia on October 12, 2012. 
during his parole hearing, he did made an, make an apology, and there was an article that I found that had the apology on it, but for the life of me, I could not find it. And it seemed like, when I was reading it, it just seemed like a very generic, like, I'm sorry I did this, I wish I didn't do it, like, sort of thing. It wasn't, like, anything, like, crazy. Yeah, not true remorse. Yeah, exactly. So, obviously, this was a very tragic accident. Um, I can't even imagine, like, all of the lives he would have saved during his lifetime if he would have been able to continue his practices. But he still has a legacy that lives on. His daughter, Vanessa Chang, uh, continues to be in the leadership at the Victor Chang Foundation. This foundation grants funds to education and innovation in the field of cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery. He also has a ton of other incredible contributions that were made in his honor, such as the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. Uh, Time Magazine listed him as the figure for 1979 to 1989 for people who shaped the last 50 years in the South Pacific. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, and a little, I think this is cute, um, very Sydney. They named a Sydney fairy, emerald class fairy, after him, and it's just called Victor Chang. Um, He has three children, Vanessa, Matthew, and Marcus, and I believe they're all still living, and Anne, his wife, is still living. Um, It just goes to show you that bright and radiant individuals can still fall victim to these absolutely terrible crimes, and that's why my parents worry about me. Oh my god, that's so sad. I mean, I'm glad that he has such memoriams in mm-hmm. lieu of his death, but at the same yes. time, should never have happened in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. I can't, I just, it's a hard for me to wrap my head around a hero. Obviously, all deaths are important. Um, everybody's story needs to be told, but it's hard when it's someone that saves so many other people's lives. Yeah, so I'll just talk about it and, like, acknowledge it we always talk about like how we we have these stories and like as much as like the world wants to move on from like such terrible tragedies we have to acknowledge the things and the stories that have happened in the past to move on and like try to fix right. the future so right yeah, yeah lasting impact though i think all three of his kids are working on stuff with him and his name and stuff like that so that's amazing honestly mm-hmm I'm glad yeah. there's, like, you were right. Like, when we texted about our stories, you were like, mine's a little bit more wholesome. And so <laughs> yeah. don't pick an incredibly gory one. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited right. to hear yours, though. Yes, mine is kind of confusing and is a lot about forensic stuff. And it's going to be kind of hard to follow. So I'm going to try to put the story as simple as possible. <laughs> Perfect. It's right up your alley. Lot. Yeah. Because my story this week is focusing on the kidnapping of Graham Thorne. So on June 7th, 1960 in Sydney, Australia, eight-year-old Graham Thorne left for school at 8.30 a.m. When family friend Phyllis Smith went to go pick him up at the usual spot on the corner, she could not find him. She usually drove Graham Thorne with her other kids that went to the Scots College to school, but when he wasn't there, she went to his family home to see if he decided to go to school. At his family home, his parents told her that he had left for school and should have been there. Getting worried, Phyllis Smith went all the way to her his school but could not find him and, in fact, ended up calling the New South Wales Police. 
By 9.30 a.m., Sergeant Larry O'Shea of Bondi Police and two other detectives had arrived at the Thorne family home. And by 9.40 a.m., 70 minutes after Graham supposedly left for school, a man called the Thorne house. He was known, he was noted to have a foreign accent, and in his call he said, I have your boy, I want 25,000 pounds before 5 o'clock this afternoon. I'm not fooling. If I don't get the money before 5 o'clock, I'll feed the boy to the sharks. O'Shea doubted this man asking for 25,000 pounds because O'Shea did not know where the family would get that much money. However, the O'Shea did not know is that the family had won a lottery a week before. So in concern to the lottery, a week before, the construction of the Sydney Opera House had been seen to be too expensive. And so the New South Wales government was holding lotteries in order for people to like put money into the Opera House and then certain money people could win the money back. So first place prize of a hundred thousand Australian dollars, which is two point nine million Australian dollars in twenty seventeen was won by Basil Thorne, who was Graham Thorne's father, on June 1st, 1960. The problem with this is that back then, this was happening in 1960, you have to remember, and so there was no privacy when it came to such big prizes, so details and images were published in the front page of the newspapers, and it was even told in the newspapers that the prize would be paid by Thursday, July 7th, which coincided with the day that Graham went missing. So after explaining the situation to the sergeants, they waited for a call back. By 9.47 a.m., this caller called again, and a police officer pretended to be Basil, the father, and they tried to trace the phone call. The officer was given instructions to put money in two paper bags, and then at that moment, the caller hung up. And they waited for another call, but they did not receive one. Freaking out, the story was put on the front pages of the newspapers by the afternoon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's an so, ongoing investigation. It's, it's, <laughs> it was a lot. So the Thorne family, to give a couple more background, so there's the father, Basil, the mother, Frida, there's an oldest daughter, Cheryl, who was institutionalized, their son, Graham, and then they had an even younger daughter, Belinda, who was four at the time. So after Graham went missing, a massive search occurred where every house and flat near where Graham was abducted was searched. All hideout search, like motels, hotels, everything in the area. Officers on leave were called back to duty, and even TV news stations put the police commissioner on TV and even had Basil join to try to, like, to make more media coverage and try to convince the caller to bring forth Graham. So it wasn't until July 8th, the day after at 6 p.m., that Graham's school case was found on a busy highway on the outskirts of Sydney. And then July 11th, a couple days later, about a kilometer away from where his school case was found, on the other side of the highway, his school cap, raincoat, and lunch bag were found. And the apple and his lunch bag was still in it. It's really sad. Finally, on August 16th, so about five weeks after he went missing, 1.5 kilometers from his school case, the body was found at Grandview Grove, Seaforth in Sydney, on a vacant land. The body of Graham was wrapped in a blue tartan rug where he still was wearing his school uniform. He was t- his arms were tied with string and so were his legs, and he was gagged with a scarf. He had been there for a while as he was decomposed some, and he was found by a couple of school children. 
Other school children said that they saw it a few weeks ago and told their parents at 7 p.m. that day once the news broke out. So he had been there for a while. So after some examination of the body, it was found out that he died from either asphyxiation or head injury or both at the same time because he had a skull fracture. But he also had like a scarf right around his neck. So they weren't sure which one really came first or if it was a combination of both. He had cuts and abrasions on his skin, and he had internal trauma, which says that he had been kind of beat up a little bit. But they believe he was alive when he was hit on the head, so they really attribute the head injury to the major reason for his murder. And they found out that he was murdered within 24 hours of him going missing and then dumped right afterwards. They So they think that he was alive when the caller called but then at the same time the caller never gave information on where to leave the money so that's where they got like really confused yeah so once they had the twenty five thousand pounds they would just give it to him but i guess if they were never given another phone call or directions past the two paper bags that could be a reason so they're just really dealing with the missing case and then to find the body they were like oh okay this is this is really important. And this case was like, is known as the, like the first really big ransom case in Australia. And Mm -hmm. honestly was like the invention of stranger danger in Australia. So this case was like really important in Sydney and had huge media coverage. You would think so so after that case, did they keep publishing the winners on the front page anymore? (laughs) No, that was it. They were like, and that's when they started, like they allowed anonymous. So you could, choose Mm -hmm. to say and put your name out there but you could also choose not to yeah i would always choose not to Mm -mm. no i don't play with the and we're women (laughs) we can't play with that no well so and that's i mean in my case it was money motivated yeah that's true i forgot that literally i didn't forget but you're right like both of ours had money involved and wasn't reason for all of this Mm -hmm. an investigation started to try to find out who the killer was and that's when mrs thorne um frida thorne had the thought that she remembered that a private investigator, I say in quotation marks, had come to their house like a couple of days before Graham went missing. Mm-hmm. He went by the name Mr. Bognor and asked for their telephone number and like re-asked for their address. And Frida thought it was very strange because their phone was not installed yet and they just moved into the house. So they were like, this is interesting. Why mm-hmm. is this private investigator already coming? So they made note of that. And later police, like, made the connection that the killer had decided to do this um, to make sure that he had the right phone number and kind of set up for the um, kidnapping. Well, it's crazy that he, like, actually went to the house before. Yeah. He had the confidence and the plan to do this and, like, calculate it. So how did they find out their their address? Um, so I guess they published it in the newspapers. I don't know if they published oh, the address in the God. newspapers, but they published, like, their full name. And... Mm-hmm. Even, like, on all the sources, they had the address of where Graham lived. So it was not, like, a secret. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, and I don't know if this is something that they do in Australia, but in the United States for a while, anytime there was property transfers, they would put it in the newspaper. So you could see, like, let's say you buy a house, Mona, and then where you live. And it would just be in, like, a little ad section or whatever. In your newspaper, so you could see. And not do that anymore. No. (laughs) No. So, yeah, honestly, it probably was really easy to find the address or just asking people. You know, like, back in the 1960s. It was different. It was different, honestly. 
And this is one of the reasons why it's no longer, like, this is one of the reasons why it is now different nowadays, Mm -hmm. that they don't have this anymore. Yeah. Or that, like, that ease of finding everybody. Right. So, um, witnesses claimed, and, like, they added to, like, anonymous tip lines that they saw an iridescent blue 1955 cord custom line double parked near where Graham was supposed to be picked up. So the police investigated 260,000 Ford index cards coming up with 4,000 similar cars. Dang. Yeah. So of these people investigated, two detectives called Stephen Bradley, who was born in Budapest, and his actual name was Istvan Baranway. Yay. Sorry for butchering that. Who hmm. um, was immigrated in 1950 to Sydney and was an electroplater. Do you know what an electroplater was? Mm-mm. I did not know either, but I guess they, like, coat items with metal. They, like, work with electrical currents in engineering. It's a very base-level job. So, but they interviewed him and said that he was very cooperative, but he owned the car, but then ended up selling it. So, the cops started investigating the car rug that Graham was wrapped in. So, it was a blue tartan rug, and on it, they found dog hair that was owned by a Pekingese. And they also found blonde hair. So that was two pieces of evidence that they used to later find the killer. On it also was two plant-type fibers. And um, just for humoring you, I'm going to try to pronounce them. <laughs> One was a Chemicyperis cifera and a Cypressus glabara. Totally butchered those. Any people who, what are, what are they called when they do plant stuff? Uh, flora? No. Botany. And every botanist is about to be like, oh, God, I can't listen to this <laughs> podcast anymore. I did not get my PhD for this. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they found those two plant fibers on the rug, but the, they could not find those plant fibers on the body, which means it was just the, the body was nowhere near those plant fibers. They also found soil scrapings, which showed fragments of pink mortar. They deduced that the body had been under a brick building at some point, but the rug could be traced to the plant life. Um, so they started looking for a house with two, those two types of plant fibers, having one type of those were pretty common, but having both types is pretty rare. So it became pretty easy and they got a tip off by a postman who found a pink house with two of those plants and a blue car. October 3rd, the police visited the house rented by Stephen Bradley, who they had talked to before. However, they found out that he left on September 26th to sail for London on the SS Himalaya with his family. They looked for his car, and they found it impounded, and they took scrapings from the car to try to see if it would match evidence. In the weeds behind his house, they found 25-millimeter film-negative photos that showed Mrs. Bradley, his wife, and their children. And they were sitting on a rug that was the same pattern as the one that wrapped Graham's body. As well, they had a Pekingese dog named Cherry, which gave a lot of evidence saying, this is probably him. (laughs) So, on October 10th, Himalaya arrived in Colombo, Sri Lanka. At the time, it was known as Ceylon, and two Sydney policemen were waiting for him there. However, they did not have an extradition treaty with Sri Lanka, and so they had to ask for one. And after hearing the detectives in the New South Wales police force talk about why they needed him, um, why they believed him to be the killer, extradition was granted. And on November 19th, Bradley was returned, and they said that he confessed to the murder before landing at Sydney Airport. 
Yeah. So who is Stephen Bradley? So Stephen Bradley was married to Ava Maria Laidlaw, and they had one child before she died in a car accident. Then he married Magda Whitman, who was a divorcee with two previous children, and she also had dyed blonde hair. Interesting. He has a type. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it showed, like, in the forensic evidence. So forensic evidence was really important in this case and was one of the most defining cases for forensic evidence, mm-hmm. which, you know, I like forensic stuff, so that was really, really fun to read about mm-hmm. and get, like, more of the science stuff. Um, but... Stephen Bradley himself was known to be tense, insecure, but intelligent, sociable and engaging, but a hopeless liar. And he worked a lot to support his family. So he really needed that money. He admitted to the kidnapping, like I said, but he said that Graham suffocated while locked in the back of his car. However, investigators disapproved this, saying because they connected a breathing mass inside the boot of his car and then breathed the air for seven hours with no ill effect. So they were like, Okay, so you lied. He did not die just, like, in the back of your car. Imagine being, like, their intern and being like, hey, we gotta, like, do this test really quick. Can you work nine to five? We just need you here for at least seven hours. But at least you're like, yeah, dude, I want a job as a police officer. I'll do anything for you. It's a forensic scientist. And they're like, all right, get in the van. (laughs) Interns? If you're an intern, I feel so bad for you. And I've been an intern, and I felt bad for me. Oh, man. As an intern, you'd literally just sit and, like, they could literally have you writing each number in a calculator for, like, 25 hours, and you'd do it because you're like, please give me experience. Please give me a job. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. But, yeah, (laughs) go back to your story. (laughs) No, you're right. You're right. But that's why investigators were like, okay, he probably was killed by the blow to the head, and they still convicted Bradley. I mean, it was no obviously no accident. On November 21st, 1960, they had um, Mrs. Thorne identify Stephen Bradley. So they had her like had him in a lineup because she wanted to see if he looked like the private investigator that had come to her house before. And mm-hmm. the police said to her, please place your hand on him. And she said, no, I will not put my hand near him and called him out of the lineup. So this is when Bradley started talking about the kidnap itself, and he said that he saw Graham walking towards the corner store where the Smith usually goes to pick him up every week or every day, and he convinced him to come with him to take him to school. Graham got in the car, and Bradley took him to the park, knocked the child unconscious, and then tied and wrapped him up. He drove to Harbor Bridge to make the ransom call and checked the boy at 3.30 p.m. and found out that he had died and passed away. And he believed it was because he suffocated. Probably because he was, like, gagged and, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they never really knew exactly what hit him or if it was just, like, exactly how he died. Because that's how Bradley said it happened. But obviously, right. it, that's not how it happened. Well, I mean, and also, he's an impulsive liar. Exactly. So, they just, I mean, he did it, obviously. But it's just, I guess the details aren't important at the end of the day. And... That shows why he didn't call them back by 5 p.m. because the child was dead and he, like, didn't know what to do. So the trial of Bradley was nine days and he was sentenced to life imprisonment on March 29th, 1961. He asked for appeal and he was obviously rejected. So he was sent to, oh gosh, Golbum Gol. Gow? Um, it's you could a just stuck to the first one and I would have 100% believed you. <laughs> I mean, it's like two words. Golbum Gow? Anyways, he worked as a hospital orderly there, and he was protected from the other prisoners because he murdered a child, and 
He ended up dying in prison on October 6, 1968, of a heart attack. He was playing a tennis competition um, and died at 42. So, Wow. I don't know if that's a good or bad ending, because, I mean... <laughs> it's not expected. I was not yeah, ready for that. <laughs> just a regular tennis competition, heart attack, dead. But, I mean, by the end of the story, Bradley never really showed remorse for his actions. He never apologized. Mm-hmm. And, like I said, winners are now, like, allowed to be anonymous of lotteries and stuff for this very reason. And just, like, one last theory is that a famous crime journalist, Alan Dower, thought and believed that Bradley meant to kidnap the youngest sister, so mm-hmm. um, who was Belinda, who was four years old, but believed that Bradley decided not to because the child was too close to the parents all the time, you know, because she was so young. Mm-hmm. But it would have been easier to kidnap her because of the fact that she's so young, she would have forgotten details about him and stuff like that. Kidnapping um, Graham kind of ruined his plan, and that's why my parents worry about me. But it is interesting how the forensic evidence, like literally negatives of a photo can be the reason why they find someone. Do you think his plan was to kill him or the little girl all along? I don't think he meant to kill him. I think he just honestly wanted the money. Because, honestly, if you kill them, you can't get the money. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you hate things that um, are unsolved, and I hate things that I can't get the answer to. <laughs> See, I'm happy because I'm like, it's solved. It's case over, case closed. And you're like, wait, there has to be more. Why are your parents proud of me this um, week? So, my parents are proud of me this week because I'm really good at marketing and promotion. Uh, <laughs> so I've been doing this new thing, which I just, I just think is really funny. Um, so I'm like my Tinder profile, for example, I, my, I only have a Tinder profile to promote the podcast in the profile. I'm like, listen to my podcast and I'll talk to you. <laughs> and then, um, when I, so I went to a, a bar last week with a couple of friends and, um, there's this guy hitting on us and he offered to buy us drinks and he was like, can I buy you a shot? And I told him he had to listen to the podcast first. And he was like, no way I'll do that. What's your podcast name? And I was like, why my parents worry about me? And this man is literally going on Spotify and he's like, I'll start playing it right now. And I was like, buy the shot. (laughs) Bye. I'll see you in 45 minutes. Have fun listening. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) What about you? I really hope your parents are more proud of you for a way more wholesome thing. So a few weeks ago, I talked about confidence and how, like, working out is important. Or you talked about working out being important or whatever. I have been working on, like, revamping my style to match kind of my, I don't know. I mean, I'm wearing things from, like, high school still. And I'm an adult working in, like, a corporate environment. So I really can't be dressing the way I was in high school. Uh, yeah, but think about the money you're saving. <laughs> right, exactly. Well... So I've gotten really into thrifting over COVID. I was doing a lot of online thrifting. And because of, you know, the CDC and kind of our state opening its doors and things like that, I'm able to actually go like in-person thrifting. I'm not able to try on clothes or anything. I go with a mask and gloves um, just because that makes me feel safer. Yeah. Um, But I got a whole bunch of really cool... And cute clothes that match, like, the adult tailor. Oh my god, I'm so happy for you. You found things that works for you. Maybe you teach me how to sew, so I can sew my own clothes. 
Yes, I love sewing. Oh, perfect. Gosh, I really am a grandma. I'm just really making my bed. Stop. I'm starting to, like, make my own clothes and sew my own clothes. So I need your grandma skills in order to do that. So I'm fine with it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I can teach you how to read the patterns. And I actually watch a lot of shows on YouTube that teach you how to teach and also how to thrift flip. Interesting. Which are really fun. Mm-hmm. See, like, the yeah. two of us put together makes, like, one normal person. What is the uh, saying from Fairly Odd Parents? Two halves of a whole idiot. Yes. That's the saying. Yes. Yep. That is us. So cute. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, we're gonna wrap things up. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you enjoyed our our episode or have been enjoying our entire series, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you would like to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, that would be really awesome. It really does help us out. And if you have the biggest heart ever and really have been enjoying it, you can write a review. Yes, thank you so much for continuing to listen to us and like recommend us to your friends or recommend us to the boys that you talk to online or girls. We don't discriminate. Um, and. <laughs> <You do not. laughs> continue it you can like have like a really cute corona um like zoom date where you guys listen to the podcast together and you guys can like make a little comments with us so um do that and we really appreciate it ready one two three bye, bye. bye.